Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. Hope everyone has been enjoying uh, the playoffs. It's been so exciting and so much fun to watch, especially since some of these games are in the afternoon. So it makes these days just fly by being able to watch some baseball now that the offseason is here. Um, I've been back in Cincinnati now for a few weeks and um, you know, had a great season, um, great time you know, with the Orioles organization, but I will not be returning to the Orioles organization. So um, if anyone is, uh, is interested in, in hiring a hitting coach, please, uh, please shoot me an email, jonesbaseballtraining at gmail.com. On today's episode, we have Todd Miller. Todd is currently the hitting coach um, at Tennessee Tech. Uh, he's had a, a long college career. He's been uh, 16th year is this year coaching college baseball. He's someone who's been through a lot. He uh, shares a, a pretty um, pretty crazy story in this episode um, when he his very first year coaching that um, quite honestly just blew me away. I was not was not expecting it, um, and and it's pretty powerful stuff. So, but he's he's a great hitting coach. He's been around for a long time. He coaches infielders too. So we get into infield hitting, college recruiting, some of the things that they're looking for. Um, we even talk a little bit of bunning too. So we we do a little bit of everything a, a holistic lens in this episode when it comes to when it comes to hitting. So it's it's fun stuff. Um, Todd's a, a great guy, and um, he's actually going to be uh, speaking with me um, at Connecting the Dots Baseball Conference, which is. December 3rd through 5th in Knoxville, Tennessee. So if you're interested, head to ctdbconference.com. I will have the uh, link in the show notes. So again, it's Connecting the Dots Conference. Um, I'll be there. Todd will be there. A ton of other great speakers are going to be there too. Um, it, they're, they're limiting it, so there's only going to be a certain amount of people Want it to be small, um, so everyone can kind of get to know everyone and talk to everyone. So it's going to be a good time, though. Again, Knoxville, Tennessee, December third through fifth, and the website is ctdbconference.com. Again, I'll have that link in the show notes. So, ladies and gentlemen, here is my episode with Todd Miller. All right, we now welcome on Todd Miller. Todd, appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So you've been you've been in college baseball a long time. You've seen a lot of things. You've coached uh, you know a lot of different players. Um, I, I kind of wanted to start off and and ask. I'm sure, I'm sure you've recruited a lot, and I'm sure there's been times that you've recruited players, and when they've got to campus and played for you. They uh, some of them have over maybe overperformed in terms of what you thought they like you your visualization for what you thought they could be. Are there any traits of the of those particular players who overperformed? Um, maybe just character traits, work ethic, like anything in particular that you can point to and be like, oh, like now I see why he he became so good, and I I didn't see it at first. You know that's that's a great question. I mean that's we as coaches, as recruiters, we always try to look into that crystal ball and, and see where they're at, where we can see them in one, two, three, four years. And, 
you know, I think the biggest thing we all get good players. And for, for me, for us, it, it's always about player development and a big piece of player development is one guys that have some skill um, or they wouldn't be with you. And then two guys that are motivated to, that are open to change that are motivated to be the best version of themselves and that are, that are still hungry, that are not content with where they're at currently that, you know, that professional baseball is a dream being the best player that they can be is a dream. Um, and that have a relentless pursuit to get better and to develop every day. Um, so, you know, I think a lot, I, I love multi-sport guys, um, guys that want to compete, um, guys that are accustomed to getting challenged, to um, being in the weight room for competing for opportunities every day. So, you know, I don't know that that guys maybe outperform what we think. Um, maybe it just happens sooner than we plan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if we didn't like something about them, we probably wouldn't recruit them. So, having those intangibles. And I think those are the the toughest things to measure in the recruiting process. Would speaking of the recruiting process, would you say like, if you were to take, like, let's just say you got 50 hours, you work a week, how many of those hours are recruiting, thinking about recruiting, making calls, going to see players. And then how many are actually coaching or developing or just thinking about the players that were already on staff or already on the team? You know, I, I think we're always, as coaches and recruiters, we're always, we've always got our, our ear to the ground. Um, we're, we're looking for players. We're calling people. We're listening. Um, but I also think it depends where you're at with your current team. You know, early in the process, maybe as a, as a first-year coach at that school, you know, you've got to go out and find your players, but you also – you got to be setting the framework for development within house and, you know, starting to build those building blocks with guys that understand, Hey, look, this is where we're at currently. This is our vision. This is our plan. And this is where we're going and, and kind of laying out that, that roadmap. This is how we're going to do it. So I think it's a, it's a unique blend of both, you know, recruiting is the lifeblood of any, any good program, but so is development. And so being able to take those guys that you have in-house, look, that's who you're going to compete with in the spring. So you better get those guys ready and have them moving and thinking how you want them to. So, so starting to build out that process and that plan for, for your guys. Um, and then, you know, recruiting all along the way. It, it's about, you know, finding the right fit. You know, we get good players, but it, it's about finding the right fit both academically, athletically, personality, um, all those things are important. So I would say it's a blend of those 50 hours. I think we got to be doing it <laughs> on both ends at the same time. Um, it's what, a tough balance. You, you, met, you mentioned uh, the vision for your players this year for the hitters and, and the plan. What, how, how do you come up with your vision? Like, What would you say your vision and, and plan would be for, for your team right now? You know, for, for me, it's about creating and scoring runs and understanding our guys. And so I'm still in the process as a first year at Tennessee Tech. I'm still in the process of figuring our guys out, um, you know, where, how they move, how they think, how we can help help, help them on the path to uh, moving. You know, I think 
I think you want elite movers and elite thinkers. And if you can, if you can build those two things, you're going to have elite hitters. Um, oftentimes we get one or the other, or, you know, we get an elite mover, but an average thinker or an elite thinker and an average mover. So it's trying to blend those two to get the best product that we can. And, you know, so, so through the daily, it, it's, it's a daily focus of, of learning our guys, them learning me, um, and, and them understanding here's where we're at today. Here's where we're going to be by the end of the week. Here's where we're going we're to be at the end of the month. Here's where we're going to be at the end of the fall and trying to lay out that, that framework for guys to understand where they're at, where we're going and how we're going to get there. How do you, how do you build elite thinkers in a team environment when you're limited on time and space? You know, I think it's, it's daily conversation. It's daily. um, You know, you've got some guys that, that live in the video room that live on the mechanical side and we've got other guys that, that don't, and, and that's okay. Um, so understanding who needs what and and when I think is is one of the most important things as an offensive coach. Um, understanding the, our guys and building those relationships so we do understand what player A needs and what player B needs and and when they need it. Because I think we as coaches a lot of times we see things um, and the timing of when we drop that nugget to the to the player is, is so important. Um, if not, we're going to overwhelm them or get them thinking, get them sidetracked. So being able to, to deliver the message in a timely matter. Um, but I think it's, it's daily conversations, um, individually and, and team wise to, to build that elite thinker. So we're all thinking in the right direction. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head when you talked about, um, you know, just right there of, of timing, right? It's uh, coaching is so much about timing and knowing when to talk and when not to talk. And I think that's that's so important. What would you say when it comes to like actually designing your guys' practice? I mean, are, is there a structure or a system on on why certain players are in certain groups? Or is it kind of like just not necessarily random, but kind of everyone's in the same, we're kind of all doing the same thing type of format. Yeah. You know, for us this fall, it's been a lot of, it's very individualized and it's almost like going a la carte. Um, you know, we're going to start to build guys plan, you know, something that works for you might not work for me and, and so on and so forth. So starting to get guys to understand what they need when they need it, and to really build their their individual plan within the framework of our entire offense, because at the end of the day, those guys need to be their best hitting coaches. They're they're taking all their swings with themselves. I'm not always with them. Um, they're whoever that they that they you know see in the summer, whoever that they see whenever. Um, they're always with themselves with their swings. So teaching those guys movement patterns and and having a daily process, a daily focus with what they're trying to accomplish, not just in their taking mindless swings. So really this fall has, has been a lot of kind of a la carte building, building drills, building plans, building movement patterns, and, and really starting to understand what certain guys need and when they need it. Um, but it, it's, 
you know, we've got guys that can hit and we've got guys that can move well. Um, a big, a big part of it is, is thinking, thinking the right way. So starting to build that, those movement patterns with the approach. And for me this fall, it's, it's been very a la carte. We're going to build that buffet table and then we're going to start to, to make choices a la carte based on each kid. Have you been able to watch any of the playoffs uh, recently? I've been on the road a little bit, so I hadn't gotten to see as much as I've wanted. But but yeah, I've seen I've seen uh, some of the games. Well, the only reason I bring that up is kind of it's it's what we're talking about right now. And uh, you know, Red Sox last night, you know, had a runner on sack, bunted them over, ends up scoring mm-hmm. on a sack fly. So it's kind of you know the opposite of what you see a lot <laughs> of times right now on on hitting Twitter and just uh, the baseball world in general. So, I mean, are, are you guys, are you emphasizing, you talked about scoring runs. So are you emphasizing or drag bunning and bunning and hit and run and all that kind of stuff too? Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, talking about building an offense, you know, we want guys that are versatile, being able to put different tools in their toolbox. And, you know, a guy that might hit in the three or four hole for us, he gets a chance in professional baseball. He might not be in that same spot. He might be, down the order you might be an eight or seven eight or nine hole hitter so him having those tools in his toolbox we want guys that you know that can push or drag um they you know they can slash they they've got a well-rounded repertoire that they can use to help us create offense and help themselves create their own offense and so yeah i i I want guys i think there's a time and place for it um and we were talking about it this morning, you know, what happens in that game last night if they choose not to bunt, you know, so now they're hitting runner at first, nobody out. Um, you know, how do they play that? How do they play that? You know, so they had, they chose to to sacrifice that, that uh, runner to second base. They said, you know, getting him to second is more important than this guy swinging the bat. And it's not a knock on that guy, just the game will tell us what needs to happen if we're willing to to watch and listen for it. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, I'm sure the analytics would have said not to do that, right, in that mm-hmm. situation, not to sack bunt. So I think it goes back to, you know, our analytics. I, I kind of consider my brain as like a computer. So in a sense, the computer did say to sack bunt because my brain told me to. <laughs> Sack bunt, you know what I mean? So that, that way you can get both sides uh, on your – or both both ways on your side. But, w- like, when it comes to actual bunting, do you teach a specific way? Like, I've seen coaches teach very specific ways to bunt. They want everyone bunt the same way. Do you teach a certain way? You know, it, it's kind of like hitting. Um, I think there's certain places that all great hitters get to, and how they get there is is kind of unique to them. So – um, kind of taking what we have, like, here's the framework of, of, of what we're going to do. We might put some constraints on guys, but, um, we want them to have the best opportunity to execute whatever situation it may be. And if, if a guy is, is comfortable doing one way, then, then let's, let's let him do that. Um, I'm not here to change guys just because the sake of changing them, but let's, yeah. let's make it beneficial for, for both parties. And, now, if they're unsuccessful at doing it their way, then sure, then then we'll we'll modify and, and get to a point where they need to be more consistent and and being able to 
to get things done. But I, I, I view it very much like um, hitting and, you know, teaching certain movement patterns. And we want guys to get in certain spots and places on in, in time and space on time. It, it's kind of the same way um, bunting wise. Um, the goal is to, to get the guy to second base. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's it. I hope I don't get too much flack for asking you uh, about bunny <laughs> for a few minutes, but well, you, but the thing is, is you coach infielders too. And so mm-hmm. that's not an easy play, right? I mean, to come in on the run, field it cleanly and then make a good throw to first base. Would you say that bunning should be utilized more in college baseball just because of like, it's difficult to feel it's difficult to make the throw. A lot of bad things can happen. Yeah, but you know, we're a lot of good things can happen too if if uh, if we swing the bat. So it depends what which side of the fence you're on. And, and I think giving up an out for a 90 feet is contingent upon each guy's philosophy and that point in the game. So sure, it it, it does certain things, but I also if, if you've got a guy that can swing the bat, we pra- we practice hitting a lot more than we practice bunting. So. Um, you know, what you, what you practice, you're probably going to be better at. What do you got on a, a two strike approach? You know, the, the strikeouts, the least efficient out in baseball. Um, typically, typically I don't want guys to change um, their swing. We, we talk more about changing their timing and approach. Um, you know, certain guys, you know, it happened the other day, guys were like, well, I like to do this. I like to choke up. I like to spread out. I like to get up on the plate. I said, that's, that's fine. But how often do you practice that swing? And they're like, well, not very often. I said, well, you know, rule of thumb, half your at-bats are going to happen with two strikes. So what you do in those two strike at-bats is going to dictate a lot of things in terms of the production that you have or the production that you leave on the table. So I would rather guys not change their swing so much as change their timing and approach of what we're, we're looking for. So two strikes, we got to be good with two strikes. I mean, that's two strike hitting. Um, that's, that's winning you ball games and winning you championships. What, what would you say, or what would you recommend to one of your players about their approach with two strikes? Like what, what's, do you have an ideal approach for them? You know, it, a lot depends on the kid. A lot depends on the guy on the mound. But generally speaking, we're going to look, we're going to look away. Um, we're going to be kind of later fastball timing, looking away out over the plate. Uh, might even expand our our zone. You know, college baseball typically they're going to call a little bit off the plate, right? Um, yep. That 17, 17 inch plate becomes twenty twenty one inches at times, and so understanding that. Um, I think more often than not, umpires don't go in and call off the plate in so much as they call off the plate away. So kind of shifting our focus, uh, moving our plate a little bit away and, and, and looking for fastballs out, out away um, and shifting our timing to enable us to be on the fastball, but also still be on time with, with the off-speed pitch. Are you, do you still emphasize doing damage with two strikes or is it more so just putting the ball in play? We, we still want to do damage. Um, most times when we put the ball in play weekly, um, you're still out. And, and especially at the professional level, um, 
you know, we get some, some free, free bases on airs or, or what have you at the college level, but we still want to be on the barrel. If we can hit the ball 95 plus, we got a chance of, of getting on, on the bases, whether it's two strikes, one strike, no strike, we're still trying to do damage. I think just the side of the field or the part of the plate that we're looking for changes. Yeah, that would be the reason why I brought up with two strikes and, you know, are you still having to do damage or anything like that is that would be my, the one thing that I've seen in professional baseball with guys who just came out of college is in college, they've had, they've been taught and had the mindset of, you know, putting the ball in play essentially with two strikes. Like that's their, mm-hmm. their main goal. Like it so becomes defensive, which affects their timing. And it's like, sure. that may work in college, but you get to professional baseball, like you're, that, that's a broken bat. Like you're not, <laughs> nothing good is going to happen. And I think what ends up happening a lot of times too, with two strikes is we know it's two strikes. We don't want to strike out. So we start swinging at stuff that we would never swing at with mm-hmm. less than two strikes. And so it's, and I know, like, don't be wrong, I hate striking out just as much as anybody, but I'm just, you know, thinking, and I've thought a lot about this is if we had the mindset of being okay with, you know, I don't know, and this doesn't sound good to say, but being okay with taking that strike three, even that's two balls off the plate, Mm -hmm. maybe more times than not over the course of an entire season, we would score more runs and do more damage consistently because we're not swinging at that pitch. Does that make sense? I I agree. I, you know, part of having, you know, we talk a lot about strike, strike zones, discipline and, and swinging at strikes and taking balls. So why would we expand our zone just because there's two strikes? So us swinging at a pitch out of the zone that we probably don't have a chance to whatever you, whatever you classify damage being, um, if we don't have a chance to hit the ball hard, we're out. So our, our chase rate goes up. Our swing and miss rate goes up. I, I, I want guys to, you know, this, like I said, the strikeout's the least efficient out in baseball, but it's not the worst thing that could happen. You know, first and third, one out, we put a ball in play. It's a double play. We're out. You strike out, you got the guy behind you that at least has a chance to drive in a run. So, you know, we train very hard to, to swing at strikes and take balls. And it sounds so simple, but having that mindset of two strikes, nothing really changes um, other than I'm still looking for a pitch to hit other than my timing and focus on certain parts of the plate is going to change. Totally. Yeah. hundred percent agree with it. I think, I think it's, you know, you probably do, you do want to expand a little bit, right? It's not mm-hmm. where it's like you're just looking in your hot zone when, with less than two strikes, but, you know, you expand a little bit. It just, I don't know. I'm sure I'll get some emails about that this week and some people who who probably, I know there are some good points on the opposite end of the spectrum too. I get mm-hmm. that. I guess it's just from what I've seen personally um, in, in well, professional baseball. You, you know, for us, we talk, we talk a lot about, swinging at what you're going to get, not necessarily what you want to hit. And, you know, we all want the fastball right down the middle. And how often do we get that pitch? Not enough. So let's sit on pitches that we're going to get, not necessarily the ideal pitch that I want to hit. And if we do that, we're going to get more pitches that we're looking for. More pitches that we're looking for, 
we're going to be on time with and on the barrel with. And the more we do that, the higher our, you know, potential batting average, slugging on base, runs created, runs scored are, are all going to go up. How would you help prepare them for what they're going to get, not what they want to get? I mean, do you guys have pretty, I like, get in hitters meetings before the game or like, I know this is your first year at Tennessee tech, but I guess what mm-hmm. do you envision doing or maybe what you've done in the past? You know, I think first they got to understand who they are as a hitter and what parts of the plate, what pitches, what speeds, location I handle, I do damage. And, and then conversely, what parts of the plate or pitches that I, that I don't hit well. Um, and so first and foremost, they got to understand that for themselves as a hitter. And we'll talk about that. And, you know, we can, we can show them spray charts. We can show them video. We can do all those things to educate the guy, but they have to ultimately buy into who they are as a hitter that day, that moment, that point in time. Doesn't mean that won't change in a week or two weeks or, or a year, but that moment in time, that's where they're at. And so combining that with, who they're facing. Is it a, is it a high slot righty? Is it a low slot righty? Is it a guy with sink? Is it a guy with run? Is it a lefty that's, that's working away that only showcases in to go back away. So understanding who they are as a hitter and then, you know, on the scouting report side, what they're going to get. So combining blending of what I do well to what I'm going to get and what he's going to try to do, because at the end of the day, that pitcher has a job to do too. It's not just about me as a hitter. It's about, well, he's going he's going to execute, execute his pitches based on the plan that he has to get the result that he wants or needs in that situation. Yeah, it's it's such a cat and mouse game. And it's, you know, which is the fun part about hitting at the art of hitting. You know, like you said, you know, he's trying to execute his pitches and he's trying to pitch to his strengths, and then hitters have their strengths. So it's it's just, it's hard. I mean, it, it really is. Have, have you guys had, uh, have you guys been doing fall ball? Like I know some schools, maybe down South, they start a little bit later doing fall ball. Yeah, we've, we've been doing, um, you know, we've started out the first five weeks of individuals. Um, so kind of small groups working a lot of individual type stuff. And then we've transitioned into our, our team, team things where we've had, you know, more, traditional practice and, and, um, individual like BP type stuff and, and scrimmages. And we'll actually kick off our first date of outside competition this weekend, this Friday against Walter state, um, junior college down here. It's a good so program. It is, it is. And it'll be a good opportunity to kind of see where guys are at offensively and, and what we need to work on. And, you know, obviously a good chance to recruit as well. So it's at Walter state. It's at our place. It's, it's at, at Tennessee place. Tech. Now, if I remember correctly, the ball flies pretty good at Tennessee Tech. Is that right? <laughs> it, it does. It, I would say it's a it's more of an offensive park, but it also depends who's who's swinging the stick. That's true. So no wonder you were looking at me like I was crazy when I kept bringing up the bunny thing, trying to push that. Doesn't make any sense for for you guys. Well, I was wondering because Walter State, the ball flies out there pretty good too. It does. Yeah, it really does. There's some good programs. So since you're you're recruiting, you're talking about, you know, it's perfect that you guys are playing a good JUCO program. You know, you can look at recruits too. I mean, do you have a, a philosophy when it comes to recruiting JUCO, high school, 
is it just need dependent always? I mean, how do you, how do you know what to go after? You know, that's a great question. Um, I think it depends a lot on your team, where you're at with things. Um, you know, going the junior college route, a lot of times you're going to get what you get. Um, and doing your homework, understanding what you're getting, um, not just from the talent perspective, but what the type of person and player that they are. Um, and, you know, it, it's typically going to be if you're going to get a junior college player for your transfer, um, you hope or you want to make sure that they're ready to play right away. If not, we're, we're kind of wasting both of our, both of our time. So, um, you know, guys that, that fit into your program, your philosophy and, and guys that are going to log innings or log at bats for you, um, because it does either side, no good to, to bring in a guy who's, who's older experienced and, and for him not to play. So being aware of, of that and, and, uh, yeah, it, it's got to be the right fit for for both kids and and program. What about when it comes to um, recruiting young high school kids? And I'm asking because I it seems that the bigger schools are the ones who are recruiting, like the freshmen, sophomores, heck, even eighth graders, and then <laughs> um, maybe outside of the, those bigger schools, like. Uh, you know, they, the other schools will wait to see like, well, who's left over. And then we go and attack those players. Is that accurate? I would say so. Um, you know, a lot depends on, on the kid in the program. Um, for, for us, it, you know, getting a high school kid, I, I think they have more room to um, more room to, fill in and, and develop um, and be a part of the program and understand the strengths and weaknesses that they have and, and kind of moving forward, you can really build more of a, a developmental plan with those guys um, where, you know, we're, we're a mid-major school. I'm not saying, you know, we, we've got to develop just like anybody else, but for us to, to sign a 14 year old high school freshman is, is probably not the case. They would be looking more at a power five school if, if they're that talented. So for us to, to go after the, the eighth grader, ninth grader is, is kind of pointless on our behalf, but you know, you definitely have to build your recruiting base and understand the wants and needs and, and where the trajectory of your program and, and how you want to shape recruiting with, with three to four year guys or, or one to two year transfer kids. So. We, I had on a, uh... Mike Rooney, and he mm-hmm. had mentioned that he offered Dustin Pedroia a 78% scholarship, which I thought was, when he first said that, I was like, you just make up that number, 78%. <laughs> How do you guys structure your the the offer, the actual offer itself? Is there a system in place that you use? No, we can't give you too many of the trade secrets here, but... I know, um, I know. You know, it, it depends on, typically you're going to spend more money up the middle, right? Um, with your with your arms, your catcher, your shortstop, your center fielder. Um, in terms of a high school guy, um, you, you need to see him being on the field within one to two years. If not, why would you recruit him? Um, so if they're an impact guy day one, then that's probably going to warrant potentially more financial assistance. Um, you know, it, it kind of goes back to – where you're at as a program too, you know, being at the, 
I've been at the division three level. I've been at the division two level and I've been at the division one level now. Um, you know, kind of the, the old question of, do you recruit a baseball player or do you recruit an athlete? Mm. And I think depending on where you're at, um, in your program, you know, being a part of programs that we had to kind of rebuild to get to back to where we wanted, where we almost started finding baseball players, guys that could really, that were very skilled. Um, they weren't necessarily high level athletes, but they could go out there and make every routine play and, and not get you beat. Now, as we got better and better and better, I thought things shifted from being able to land more of a high level athlete who's also a good baseball player. And that's where I think really we took off in terms of once we got established as a program at, at the, at the division two level where we could land more of a high level athlete, who's also a really talented baseball player. Um, and through that process, sometimes it's one or the other, I'm getting a high level athlete who needs one, two, three years to develop, or I'm getting a high level baseball player who can't run out of sight, but he can, he can handle the bat and he can make every routine play. Um, and then as, as you're more successful or as you go up higher on into college baseball, professional baseball, those guys are, are a blend of both. And, and that's, that's really exciting, really fun to work with. Yeah. What, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, cause you mentioned right there that, you know, you've coached everywhere, right? D3, D2, now D1. Is there a huge gap between D2 and D1? You know, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I think a lot of the difference is the depth. Um, you've got, you know, your, your frontline arms are going to be as good as anybody at the Division II level. Um, and you, you probably just don't have the depth out of the bullpen that, that the Division ones have. Um, so in terms of if you go and play a, a D2 plays, a, a high-level D2 plays a, a Division One team, I think you have the chance to compete. Um, now, as you space that out over a three-game set or, or more, that's where you start to see the gap with, with arms. And, um, and then from the offensive side, I think there's more power across the board um, at the Division One level than – than there is at the division two level, just in general. I think you have to pay for power. Yeah, it's, I re I asked that for a few different reasons. A, because I know there's kids out there who, you know, all be obsessed with D one, but I mean, we had a kid this, this just this past summer, his name is Jacob Teeter, who was D two kid. And he came in was, I mean, tore it up D two was able to ended up playing actually in the Cape too, while he was in college and, you know, was drafted by the Orioles and had a great, great year. So it's just, you can find just hidden gems anywhere. And, and, and it's, which is what makes it really, really uh, interesting. I saw you coached at Bluffton university and I, I was doing some research on you, Todd, and I wanted to ask you about something because I saw this on your page. It said that uh, Miller began coaching as a graduate assistant at Bluffton in the fall of 2006 but in 2010, you uh, earned the NCAA Award of Inspiration for your inspiration for your work with the 2007 Bluffton squad, serving as the interim head coach during a trying campaign filled with unprecedented circumstances and challenges. 
That caught my attention. So <laughs> what, what exactly went on that you got an award three years, four years after of something that happened? So that was for really that was for our whole whole team. Okay. Um, so 2007 was, you know, I graduated in 2006. That was my first first year of coaching. So the fall of 06 into the spring of 07 was my first year. And, and I was at Bluffton. Um, coach James Grandy, he's the head coach there at Bluffton still. Um, good friend. And, you know, it was him and myself. We were the, the two coaches. So I really got the chance to, to cut your teeth in terms of working with everybody from offense to defense, strength, conditioning, recruiting, you know, small school, we get to wear a bunch of different hats. And but it was a great opportunity for me to really cut my teeth on what I was going to be doing for, for the rest of my life and, and as, a, as a career. So the, the spring of 07, we're, we're hopping on a charter bus headed down to, to Florida to kick off our year. And, you know, it's an 18-hour trip. And I'm sure you've been on plenty of bus rides. And, um, you know, it's it, like any other. And we hop on, you know, guys are watching movies on the, t- on the screen and just hanging out and having a good time. It's a great opportunity to connect with your teammates. And this is the first big trip. So we're headed down to South Florida to kick off our, our season. We stopped outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and we switched bus drivers. Um, so new bus driver, his wife come on and, you know, it's probably four in the morning, four 30 in the morning and we're driving straight through. Well, new bus driver, his wife, um, we get back on, you know, we stop at a gas station fuel up, get snacks and what, what have you. And so now we're, we're traveling South headed through Atlanta and we mistakenly took what was the HOV lane, the high occupancy vehicle lane. Well, that became an exit ramp. And so we're traveling 70 miles an hour up this exit ramp and long story short, we go up the exit ramp and we run into the, the retention fence 30 feet above the interstate below and we hit off the retention fence and we our bus flips down and lands on on the interstate below um i was ejected from the from the bus um i landed on the overpass um i went through the front windshield landed on the overpass i i, I broke my my jaw skull fracture four bones in my back um we lost five players um passed away bus driver his wife as well and that was in right in downtown Atlanta and so long story short that was my first spring of of coaching in college baseball and and um you know we we get back to Ohio um there were there were a number of guys in ICU um that were injured that some were were scot-free they were fine um we get back to, to Northwest Ohio. And I remember sitting there talking to the guys like, look, you know, we can, we can have this season. We can play, we can, we can choose not to. No one's gonna, gonna think less of you if we choose not to. And and the guys wanted to play. So, you know, we went through, we went through the, the, uh, the funerals and, you know, you're dealing with a whole lot of things. Um, I was a 22 year old coach coaching 18 to 22 year old guys. And, um, you know, there was no, there was no script for it. There was no plan of what to do, how to do it. And, you know, guys are dealing with losing their best friend, their roommate, their teammate. And I remember sitting there in the meeting with them and they said, look, coach, we want to play. So 
I said, well, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it to the best of our ability. And, you know, we're not going to feel sorry for ourselves. And that, that was a huge moment in, for me as a, as a coach and as a, as a human being, as a person, um, and, you know, ended up coaching the rest of that, that spring, um, coach Grandy was, was down in Atlanta in the ICU for about another month after we got back. Um, he had some more severe injuries and, so it was, it was a lot of figuring out as we, as we went, but, um, I, I knew from that moment and that, that first spring that this is, this was my passion. This is what I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, I've been fortunate enough to stay in college baseball for, you know, 15 years now, let's start my 16th year, but, you know, finding, finding that silver lining and in everything that we, that we do. Um, I ended up meeting my wife, um, from that bus accident. Uh, you know, I would have never met her and she was, she was so kind of touched by what had happened. She put together a huge fundraiser that, that, uh, you know, short time after the accident and they raised 15,000 bucks on a weekend and they, they bring over the big happy Gilmore check to, to Bluffton and present it to us. And, um, you know, a year later, it's like, well, we, we, we got in touch and I said, well, I'll, I'll go on a date with her. It's not like I'm going to marry her. And, you know, 10 years later, three kids later, here, here we are. But yeah, that was, that was the quick story of, of how the uh, NCAA award came about. Woo, uh, man, I, I don't even know what to to follow up and say to that. That was um, <laughs> that's powerful stuff. It, I just can't I can't imagine being 22 years old and uh, you know your first year coaching going through that. I mean, you could you could argue that you, it's going to be almost impossible to 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 top that as your hardest year coaching in terms of just dealing with you know, the families and I mean, the players and losing players, unfortunately, um, I, I would, I did not, I wasn't sure what your answer uh, was going to be or what the story was when I saw that, but I was not expecting that at all. Um, but I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I, uh, man, I just, I, I'm sorry to hear that. It's, that's crazy. Well, I, I mean, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, those guys, you know, I think about, about those group of guys, the, the guys that are with us and, and not with us every day, but it, it definitely helped change my perspective of what being a coach is and, and how to be a coach. Um, it's, it's not always just about the X's and O's in baseball. Um, there's a lot more to it than that, that sometimes we often, often forget. So it was a, it was a, horrific event to go through but I, I think it's helped me appreciate more things along the way that we often take for granted in this in this process of getting getting a chance to to be around 18 to 22 year old uh, young men every day and how we can help them not only as baseball players but but as men after baseball yeah I'm sure there's nobody who who understands that probably more than than you do um after after experiencing that I'm sure that's made you just an even better coach. And, um, you know, I think it was cool that you said like when you were 22 and you realized like, this is what I want to do um, after that experience too. And then meeting your wife, was your wife in the acts? Like, what, how did you meet your wife from, I know she said she'd raised the fundraiser. So she lived in Ohio. 
She was, she was, um, she was working on her master. She played softball at Tiffin university, a division two school up in Northwest Ohio. And it was about 45 minutes from Bluffton and we didn't know each other. Um, but she was, you know, she's a business minded person and she just wanted to do something to help. And, you know, she kind of got together a team of people that, that helped her as well. And they, they sold t-shirts. It was called purple day and got sponsorship and, you know, the outreach and the, the, how much, how supportive everyone was as, as we were going through that and, and still going through that emotional event, you know, even to this day that just the, the initial outreach was, was unbelievable across baseball in general. And, you know, I wouldn't be here with, with her and, and our three happy, healthy kids today with, without that. And, you know, no one wants to go through that, but I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that I met her through that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. That was, uh, that's yeah. powerful stuff, man. Really is. Um, well, I think, you know, I, I, I wasn't really expecting that story. It kind of threw me <laughs> off a little bit. I'm not going to lie, but, um, um, one last thing that I, I kind of wanted to, to touch on, um, and that was actually kind of what you do too, which is developing infielders. Um, and I know, you know, I don't, I've, I've been able to, to be around some really good infield coaches and see what they do. And, and, you know, my manager this past summer played 10 years in the big leagues and that was because he was such a good infielder. I think he'd admit mm-hmm. that too. Um, not because of his bat. Well, Dave, if you're listening, <laughs> I, I love you, but it's because you were a defensive juggernaut. How do you go about developing uh, the infielders? Cause I, it seems that there is, you know, hitting there's within a framework, you can have some variables, but, infielders kind of like this is how you play infield do you utilize video to help develop them like how, how do you go about helping developing infielders you know I think it's it's a couple things you know having having good feet great feet um, and then having good to great hands and then you know the the thing that having a having a great internal clock you know being able to make every routine play and and routine is relative to the person and so understanding, you know, we can help guys with placement in terms of shifts and read and swing, but teaching guys how to read swing, how to use their feet, how to use their hands, how to use their arm strength, whatever it may be. And so it, it's a constant thing, just like culture, just like hitting. It, it's a constant teach. It's a constant thing that we we talk about and work with. And, you know, we have our have our daily um, routine that we go through to, to get guys ready. Um, just like we do offensively, we do our daily, daily drills or daily vitamins, whatever you want to call them to, to get guys to, to be ready to compete, to be ready to get better that day. And, and then to, to be able to compete at a high level over the course of, over the course of a, of a season and, and into the summer. Would you say most of uh, the airs you see in the infield are throwing airs? I think a lot of them are, yes. I, and I think is that that's, because of their feet? They're not using – I mean, what, do, what would you attribute that to? I think a lot of times we don't throw enough. Um, and being able to have that feel to play catch, to be able to throw from different arm slots, to be able to to throw a long hop when we need, need to, or to be able to, you know, make the right choice mentally. But honestly, I don't think we throw enough um, – 
And, and that's a tough thing to manage. You know, you, you only have one arm. So being cognizant of not too much, but, but not enough. So having that balance on a, on a day-to-day basis and a week-to-week basis, you know, it, it starts with communicating with your guys. Like, how do you feel today? On a scale of one to 10, are, are you a five? Are you an eight? You know, managing their arm and then starting to build in that ownership so they they understand their arm because it, it's no different than hitting. If if guys don't understand where they're at, um, they're going to be doing the wrong thing or they're going to get themselves hurt. And, you know, having that sustainability for, you know, we don't play 162 games, but we need to be able to compete at a high level for, 60 games that we play every year. Good. Todd, I appreciate you coming on the show so much. You're going to be uh, presenting at connecting the dots conference in, in Knoxville. I believe it says it December 3rd through 5th. Um, I'll be there too. Um, Can't wait to to listen to you uh, speak there. It's going to be a lot of fun. So those who are out there listening, make sure you go sign up. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, and it'll be a lot of fun. Again, I, I can't wait to connect with you in person and, and, and hear you talk. And um, it's great we got to connect. And you've been doing this a, a long time. You got been coaching a lot longer than I have. So again, appreciate you coming on the show. And um, excited to uh, to hear you in person. Thanks for thanks for having me on. I can't wait to meet you as well. And and uh, it's always good to to be around good baseball people and good baseball minds. So thank you again, and I can't wait for the conference as well.